All right, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah 63, as we continue on through the book of Isaiah. And um, again, we'll just continue on through the uh, Jeremiah after that as we finished uh, Isaiah. But the title this evening is Judgment Comes Before the Kingdom. Judgment Comes Before the Kingdom. Isaiah here is looking ahead in verses 1 through 6. And he sees Jesus Christ returning from the battle of Armageddon that climaxes the day of the Lord. The subject is clearly different than the last section that we studied. It even seems like it's out of place here with the subject of this whole section of Isaiah. But judgment has to come first before the kingdom can come. Evil has to be done away with before God's kingdom of righteousness is set up. That's always been. God's order. When Isaiah described Jesus at his first coming, in Isaiah chapter 53, he said in verse 2 of Isaiah 53, there was no beauty that we should desire him. But here in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 63, we see majesty and beauty that speaks of his second coming. Also, the day of vengeance, here mentioned in verse 4, has already been identified with Christ's second coming rather than his first coming, as the, Lord clear, as the Lord himself clearly stated. And if you look again, when we were in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2, and you compared it with Luke 4, 18 through 20, you can see, again, that uh, the vengeance, the day of the Lord, you know, has already been identified. It's going to be in Christ's second coming. Jesus Christ came the first time as a lamb. He came as Savior. He's coming the second time as the lion, the judge. Christ's wrath is compared to a winepress in his coming judgment. Then the second part of the chapter shows the loving kindness that Jesus shows to his own people. Listen now to verses 1 through 6, chapter 63. It says, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I, have tried, tro <clears throat> for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance, notice, is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was none to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Let me read it from the New Living Translation, just to kind of help understand it a little more clear Isaiah says who is this in royal robes marching in his great strength it is I the Lord announcing your salvation it is I the Lord who has the power to save why are your clothes so red as if you have been treading out grapes I have I have been treading the wine press alone no one was there to help me and in my anger I have trampled my enemies as if they were grapes and in my fury, I have trampled my enemies. 
Their blood has stained my clothes, for the time has come for me to avenge my people and to ransom them from their oppressors. He says, I was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So I myself stepped in to save them with my strong arm, and my wrath sustained me. I crushed the nations in my anger and made them stagger and fall to the ground, spilling their blood upon the earth. Verses 1 through 6 sounds, you know, pretty, you know, I'm not even sure how to put it into words, but it, it, it sounds like it makes God look cruel. It looks just, man, he's just bloodthirsty. And, but again, you've got to understand the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. And this is a picture of sin. And, and, and when you look at how terrible sin is, you, you see that by what Jesus went through on the cross. Jesus paid the, paid the price for, for the wickedness of man, for the sins of man. And, and verses 1 through 6, Christ, like I said, now this is a picture of him coming in, in vengeance. He's coming to take care of those that, that rejected him and that ultimately were the ones that, you know, all of us, you know, in our sin, you know, that, that caused Christ to go to the cross. The word comes in verse 1, connects this with verse 60, uh, chapter 62, verse 11. You know, who is it that's coming? Edom represented Israel's enemies. Edom was famous for its winemaking, according to verse 3 here. Edom was a nation south of Israel, and Basra was the capital city of Edom. Edom was a longtime enemy of God's people, going all the way back to the personal rivalry between Jacob and Esau, Esau being the founder of Edom. Edom hated Israel so much that Edom became the perfect example of hatred towards God and his people. In other words, Edom represents the human being at its worst, despising God, finding its joy in earthly things, and persecuting God's people because they found a greater loyalty in a higher world. Who is this, Isaiah says, with dyed garments in verse 1? Now, dyed garments would be a reminder of the fact that the one treading the grapes in the wine press, well, they would naturally often have their garments splattered with the juice of the grapes. But here the color, Isaiah says, is of blood that was just shed, making the garments bright red. To say that he, that is Christ, was glorious in his apparel would mean that this bloodshed uh, or blood-stained clothing of the conqueror was a glory to him. Showing he's a conqueror over sin, over wickedness. It says in verse 1, traveling in the greatness of his strength. This pictures this conqueror walking with his chest out, his head thrown back and straight up as in the manner of one rejoicing in his victory. And if you haven't guessed by now, this is a vision of Jesus Christ, the Savior. John the Apostle saw something similar to this in his vision in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Listen to what John said. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on, a, on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness 
and wrath of, all, of the Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Isaiah says in verse 1, who is this? He asks, who is this? He's a lamb, the lamb of God, but he's also the lion. Look at the words he, that you see in verses 3 and 4. Anger, fury, vengeance. You see, he's come to wipe out every single bit of human evil in the whole world. And we better know whose side we're on. We need to be on his side. And you know what? You can be. And you know what? He wants us to be. But first, we have to seek him. We have to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now, there's two things that everyone needs to understand about the wrath of the Lamb. If he's angry at you, there can only be one reason why. Because you deserve it. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ, as he said of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. So if the Lamb of God is angry with you, it's only because you've rejected his love, you've rejected his offer of salvation, you've rejected his tenderness, and you've rejected his redemption. And the reason for the wrath of the Lamb or the judgment of Christ is the sin that will spatter your blood on his robe at his second coming. It's your rejection of his love. And he wants you to receive the love that he has for you because, again, he died for our sins. You know, that, that's his whole purpose for coming. Man didn't, didn't have any, any way of, of having his sins forgiven. Jesus Christ came and forgave us of our sins. And if you've suffered wrongly from others, you know, and, and you're angry, then let the Lamb of God fight your battles. Deuteronomy 1.30 says, The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you. And then in 2 Chronicles 20.15, it says, For the battle is not yours, but God's. So you can either boil with anger, you know, inside, and dream of getting even with somebody, you know, or you can plan on how you can do that, how you can get even with, and you can let your heart become bitter. Or, you can let the Lamb of God do your fighting for you. Paul said in Romans 12, 19 through 21, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. But do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, to calm us down from all the evil that we see taking place in this world tonight. While we're waiting for Jesus to come, Isaiah invites us to look back at the mercy and faithful love of God so far. He says in verse 4 here, the year of my redeemed has come. This refers to the law of redemption of slaves and property. And this is when a close relative of a slave had the right and the duty to buy back the slave and rescue a family a member from poverty and hardship. And Jesus is that member, that one who is, who's like a brother to us, the Bible said, who's done that through his, through his uh, suffering and, and his crucifixion. You know, he's bought us at a price, Paul said. We, we, we've been redeemed. We've been bought back. 
we've been rescued, all right, from poverty and, and hardship of sin. Now, in verses 7 through 14, God's mercy is remembered. Let's begin with verse 7. And it says, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. Paul says, I'm sorry, uh, Isaiah says in in verse 7, I will mention. Isaiah, representing the people, he publicly announces God's saving mercies. Now, notice the words here in verse 7, loving kindnesses and praises of the Lord. They're plural. Loving kindnesses and praises. This refers to the Lord's many acts of love and loyalty to his people. The word loving kindnesses is translated sure mercies in Isaiah 55.3 and Psalm 89.1. Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23 says, his mercies never cease. They never stop. And his mercies are new every morning. I love that. That is, every morning, they begin afresh. Every morning that you wake up, you receive new mercies. Why is Christ, why, why is he so merciful? Because great is his faithfulness, Lamentation says, and his faithfulness never ends. The psalmist said in Psalm 23, 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And according to Psalm 50, verse 23, the psalmist said, Whoever offers praises glorifies me. Whoever offers praises glorifies me. God says, whoever praises me glorifies me. This is the right way to start any conversation with God is to begin with praise. You know, a lot of times, and think about it, when when we go to prayer... You know, usually it's, oh, Lord, help me here. I need this. I need that. And I, you know what? We need to start prayer with praise. Start it with praise. Psalm 100, verse 4 says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. Jesus in Matthew 6, 9 says, In this manner, when he was teaching the disciples to pray, he said, In this manner, therefore pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed means holy. So when we start our prayer, let's go in and, say, and praise God and thank him for his goodness and all that he's been to us and all that he's doing for us. And in this section of Isaiah, we see that in his wrath, the Lord Jesus remembers mercy on those who belong to him. All of a sudden, everything changes here. It's like coming out of a dark room into the sunlight. It's like going from night to day. Our God is holy. Our God is worthy of praise. Our God is to be feared. That is to be revered. When it says to be feared, it doesn't mean, oh, you know, you're you're afraid God's going to do. No, the word feared means to reverence, to revere him for who he is. He does wonders. And this is only one side of God's many attributes. God is good and he shows loving kindness. He's also a God of mercy. And if these characteristics, think of it, if those, those characteristics mentioned here were not at work right now, we'd all be toast today. Burnt toast. You can be sure of that. We wouldn't be here. 
But because of his good and his loving kindness and his mercy, we're still here. Isaiah uses different words trying to describe the love of God. And he starts and he ends with God's steadfast love in verse 7. Because it's God's steadfast love that's all around us. Thank God his love is steadfast. Thank God his love is continuous. And it doesn't depend on how good or bad that I am. Judges, uh, I'm sorry, Jude 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. One way to do that is to think back. Think back and remember what God has done for you. Like Isaiah does here in verses 8 and 9. Remember, God chose you. God chose me knowing all about me. All that I was, all that I did in the world, all the things, ungodly things that I did. God chose me knowing all about me. And and he became our Savior anyway. Paul said in Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us. Notice, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God showed his love toward us. Even while we were still sinners, he went to the cross. You know, when we didn't want anything to do with him, or we thought, you know, I don't need God, or whatever it might be, he still went to the cross for me. And he shared in our afflictions. He has shared in our afflictions. Remember, God again chose us knowing all about us, but became our Savior anyway. And you know what? He shares in our afflictions. He's given us his presence. He's redeemed us. He's bought us back with a price. And he's carried us every step of the way. Listen to Isaiah 46, 3 and 4. From the New Living Translation. Isaiah says, God says, Listen to me, descendants of Jacob. All of you who remain in Israel. Notice, I have cared for you since you were born. Yes, I carried you before you were born. And I will be your God throughout your lifetime until your hair is white with age. I made you and I will care for you. I will carry you along and save you. God has been with you from even before you were born. With you when you were born. And he's going to carry, carry you all the way to your grave. He's going to be with you all the way to the grave. That is steadfast love. The greatest love is steadfast love. And it's, think of it, it's steadfast love for people who don't deserve it. And that's totally us. That's the kind of love that God has for his people. That's the story of salvation. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that those who believe in him should not, shall not perish. It's the story of salvation coming down to this world. In 1 John 3, 1, John said, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. You know what that word behold there means? When it says behold what manner of love? That, the kind of love that God has for us is, is out of this world, literally speaking. That's what, it, that's what John meant when he said, Behold what manner of love. It, it, I, John, it's like John saying, Man, what kind of love is this? We've never seen a love like this. It's, it's not from this world. You know, we turn our love off and on like a faucet. 
You know, our love a lot of times is based on people's responses to us, our attitudes towards us. But not the love of God. There's nothing that I can do that would make God love me less. I love that. Just think of how the church started. It was just a small group of fearful people in an outpost of the Roman Empire with all of the powers of society against them. But it doesn't matter, think of it, it doesn't matter who's against Jesus today. Until he comes back, he is always going to have enemies. And so will you. That's a fact. But don't worry about it. Be careful that your response to his steadfast love does not change somewhere along the way. It's not Christ's enemies that cause us to lose our power. We do it ourselves. Jesus is coming in judgment to take over this earth. And it's obvious that he's given men an awful long time to return to him, over 2,000 years. He's been prophesied. He came. And he's going to return any time now. Look at verse 8. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. God said, they are my very own people. Surely they will not betray me again. And he became their savior. In the Hebrew Bible, the term my people is used in two ways. First, it's used for those who were united nationally to God by blood and history through Abraham's flesh. And secondly, for those who are united to him inwardly through Abraham's faith and obedience. But it's the nation that's in view here. Those who are of the descendancy of, of, of Abraham and who are of the nation of Israel. That's what it's speaking about here. The word lie in verse 8 means to deal falsely. Israel's rebellion was unexpected. Just as godly parents expect godly children, so God himself expected godly children. Here's God's adoption of Israel as his children in Egypt. Notice it says in verse 8, For he said, he being Jehovah God. For Jehovah God said this, said this here in verse 8, when he, when he chose them as being his special people, and he entered into a covenant with them, the nation of Israel. He said here in verse 8, no, Surely they are my people. This refers to the fact that he entered into a covenant with them to be their God. And he said, notice, children who will not lie. That is, they won't prove false to me. Showing the reasonable expectation that God might have when he chose them that they would be faithful to him. Verse 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bore them and carried them. Notice, all the days of old. Notice, in the words, their affliction there in verse 9, their affliction probably refers to God's sympathy for his people when they were in Egypt. Also, at the time of the judges. It says, when his people were afflicted, he was afflicted. In other words, think about that. God shares in the hurt of his people. When you're hurt, he's hurt. Paul's persecution of the members of the early church caused Jesus to be afflicted. Acts 9.4 says that. 
And he says there in verse 9, notice again, he says at the end there, he bore them and carried them all the days of old. The word bore and carry are references to how God took care of them in Egypt and the wilderness. From beginning to end, from the moments that Jesus, that, that, that God uh, had Moses deliver them from Egypt to the very day they entered into Canaan, into Canaan and from that point on, God took care of them. And as often as they were afflicted, God himself felt afflicted. The angel of his presence, mentioned here in verse 9, delivered them. In his love and in his long-suffering, he redeemed them, he lifted them up, and he carried them all the days of their past. From the beginning to the end, God carried them. And that's what he does with us. Their afflictions, God's people, the Israelites, their afflictions started in Egypt when another pharaoh took over that didn't know Joseph. When God's people suffer, God suffers with them. He feels your pain. Don't think that you're going it alone. God knows what you feel. When Jesus was here, he experienced every, every temptation, everything that you could ever experience, he experienced and even more. So he knows what you're going through. He knows how to help you. He knows when you pray what he can do to help you. The angel of his presence saved them, it says here. Now, this is the angel of the Lord. This wasn't an angel or an archangel. It was the very personification of the divine presence of God. God did not send a substitute here to deliver them. It was his own presence that delivered them. So what we see here is an example of the pre-incarnate work of the second person of the Trinity. This was Jesus Christ. This was Jesus Christ. The angel of his presence saved them. In his love, it says there, and in his pity, he redeemed them. Now we're told that in Exodus that God came down to deliver his people out of Egypt in Exodus 3, 6 through 8. So he purchased them to be his own personal possession. How did he purchase us? Through his own blood. And it says here, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. He carried them just like a father carries his child. So God brought them safely through the wilderness. He protected them. He provided for them. It says that their shoes never wore out. He fed them. They never went hungry. They never went thirsty. And he protected them from their enemies. Verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Notice, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Notice, so he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. The word rebelled here means to be contentious. They were contentious. The Holy Spirit is referred to from time to time in the Hebrew Scriptures, but several times in Isaiah. So, it wasn't the enemy on the outside that was coming against them and destroyed them. They defeated themselves. How? By being disobedient. They thought, yeah, we're okay. We don't need God that much. And so they rebelled. They rebelled against God and thing, uh, things 
so when they rebelled against God, things could not go on like they had before. God is not mocked. You can't play with God. You can't think you you, you can't you, you can't get over on God. And if our lives grieve His Holy Spirit, guess what? He will not put up with our foolishness. Notice again in verse ten what it says there uh, at the second part. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. When the church is beat up by those around them for their own foolishness, the problem isn't with those around them, but with their relationship with God. We need to be saved from ourselves more than anything else. We are our worst enemy. Verses 11 through 16. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within him, within them? Who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the deep as a horse in the, in the wilderness that they might not stumble? As a beast goes down into the valley and the spirit of the Lord causes him to rest. So you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your habitation, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from everlasting is your name. So Isaiah is asking the question here, where is he? Where are you, God? He's remembering how God delivered them in the past. And sometimes when God does not, doesn't deliver us right away and it takes longer than we would like it to, we ask, where are you, God? Where are you? And Isaiah says, where, where is he? Then it says, he remembered the days of old. He goes back and he remembers what God did in the past. And you know at those times in your life when, you're, when things are difficult, go back and look at the things that God did in the past. You know why? Because he will still do that for you today, and he'll do that for you in the future. Remember how God dealt with you in the days of old. This refers here when, when, when Isaiah is saying that he, then he remembered the days of old. He's referring to the period of the exodus in the wilderness. He says, now, he says I'm going, and I remember how God delivered us out of Egypt. I remember how God took care of us through the wilderness, man. He led us, you know, through the, uh, by day and night through a, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He said he gave us manna every morning. He gave us, you know, water out of a rock. He, he provided all of our needs. He always took care of us. And so Isaiah's falling back on that. And that's a, a, a hopeful day. It's an encouraging day for the backslider who's walked away from the Lord or who has gone his own way, but he recognizes, you know, that, that he needs to get back with God. It's, again, it's an encouraging day for the backslider when he's in the middle of, of all of his difficulties and remembers that time of grace. 
and God's past kindness and God's past love and God's past deliverances for him. How he sets people free from the bondage of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit is always and has been God's twofold work. He sets people free from sin and he gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. This has always been God's twofold work. And then they remembered those old days when Moses led his people out of Egypt. They're crying, where is he? Where's the one who brought Israel through the, dead, through the Red Sea? Where's the one who brought us out of the Red Sea with Moses as our shepherd? Where is he? Where's the one who sent his Holy Spirit to be among his people? Where is he? Where's the one who showed his power when Moses lifted up his hand? Where's the one who divided the Red Sea before them, making himself famous forever? Where is he? Where's the one who led them through the bottom of the sea? Speaking of the Red Sea. It says here, they were like a fine racehorse racing through the desert, never stumbling. They were like cattle going down into a peaceful valley. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. You led your people, the Lord, he said, you led your people, Lord, and you received a wonderful reputation. And then in verse 15, he's praying for mercy. Notice, look down from heaven. Isaiah's praying for mercy. He says, look down from heaven. He's speaking to God. And see from your habitation, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your strength? Where is the, learning, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Are you holding back your mercy toward me, toward us? So he's praying for mercy and pardon in verse 10. He says, look down from heaven, God. Look down from your holy and glorious home and, and, and see us. Isaiah says, where's your passion? Where's the power that you used to show on our behalf? Where's your mercy and where's your compassion now? So Isaiah's prayer starts out stressing out over the way God is holding back his, uh, his compassion from his people. And it ends with Isaiah asking God to stop holding back his power and his love. The whole prayer is about wanting God to visit us without holding himself back at all. Isaiah says, hey, look down from your holy and heavenly home. We're down here in weakness. He says, and there's only so much that we can do. So Isaiah says, what's the answer? The answer is always this. We, de- we don't need more of us. We need more of God. There's such a huge difference in doing church work in our own power and entering into the presence of God. This is a good prayer here by Isaiah. It's a good prayer that God gives, that God himself gives us here. Isaiah is, now again, it looks like Isaiah is attacking God. Isaiah is not attacking God by asking all of these questions. God loves us to ask questions. But we got to come to him, in, not in a commanding way, in a defiant way or disrespectful way, but a loving way. Isaiah's not doubting God. He's just asking God, Lord, where's your passion right now? Where's your power? We need your power in what we're going through down here, Lord. Lord, where's your zeal? And why, why aren't you showing your power here in our day and age? Lord, where's the love that you have so deeply? You're holding it back from us. Come down, Lord. 
And it's because, notice what verse 16 says. Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, Lord, are our father. Lord, why are you holding your love back? Why aren't you... Father, you're our father. No matter how far we've drifted away, and we have, he's still our father. And our redeemer forever. Isaiah says, where is he? And this reminds me of Job when he was looking for God in the midst of his terrible trial. Job was seeking answers for why he was experiencing the difficulties, the trials, the suffering that he went through, the loss of his family, the loss of his belongings, the loss of just about everything, the loss of his health. God, where are you? Job asks this question in Job 23, 8 through 10. Job says, look, I go forward, but he, that is God, he's not there. I go backward, but I cannot perceive him. And when he works on the left hand, I cannot see him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take. That's what you need to remember. You may not be able to see where God is. You may not be able to see what God is doing. But you know what? God sees you. God knows where you are. That's important. He always knows where we're at. And he's always at work. It may not be as fast as you'd like it to be, but he's at work. And there are some things that take time. The important questions in life are always questions about God. And if you'll be honest with yourself and, you, and see yourself as you really are, like Jesus said, he said, poor, blind, helpless, and guilty, and needing a great friend, this becomes the most popular question of your life. And you need to stop wherever you are and whatever you're doing in your life, and you need to find that an- the answer to that question. Where is he in your life? Where is God in your life? Verse 17. Oh, Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from from your fear? Return for your servant's sake the tribes of your inheritance. Now, when you read this, oh, Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways? Why have you hardened our heart from your fear? When you read this, it sounds like Isaiah is blaming God for all of their problems. But Isaiah is not blaming God for the failure of his people. He isn't saying that God forced them to sin. They wandered from God's ways. They drifted away from God. We drift away from God. God does not drift away from us. We move away from him. Because they don't fear God. And because they don't fear God, they're the ones who are responsible for what they did. Thus, they're responsible for the consequences. When we have disrespectfully and stubbornly rejected God's grace, he withdraws it from us. He he withdraws from them in judgment and he gives them up to their own lust and he makes their hearts incapable of faith. The psalmist said in Psalm 84, 11, the Lord will give grace and glory and no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Notice. He'll give grace. He'll give glory. He won't hold back any good thing from you if you're walking uprightly. In Romans chapter 1, verse 24, 26, and 28, you will find the words, God gave them up. 
God gave them up. You see that three times. Why? Because men chose to worship the creature rather than the creator, and they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They didn't want God. They didn't think about God. They didn't care about God. They continued to go on in their sin, in their perverted way of life, and God says, okay, that's what you want. He let them go. He gave them up. Do what you want. Isaiah looks more deeply, and he sees the discipline of God at work. And when we wander from God, when we drift away from God, that doesn't cause cause God to be worried and wonder, oh, no, what should I do now? If we wander from God's ways, he may teach us a lesson by turning us over to the power of our sins to let us go so far down, all we can do is look up. And he will allow us to be hardened so that we can't come back. That's the scary thing. There is a a final line in the sand. You want to play around with God? You want to mess with God? You want to test God? Be careful. You may cross that line where your heart becomes so hardened that you can't come back. And we deceive ourselves thinking that we can fool around with sin. Oh, I can continue in some sin, and, and whenever I feel like it, I'll just come back and say, Oh, Lord, forgive me. Where do we learn to think like this? The Bible never teaches us to take God lightly. Sin is a power beyond our control. And when we find our hearts hardened with laziness and self-pity and begin to blame God so that we don't even want to go back to him, what do we do then? We need to pray that God will return to us. As it says in verse 17, return for your servant's sake, God. We're totally dependent upon God. And when we've wandered from his ways and we no longer fear him, guess what? Our hope isn't in ourselves one bit. Our hope is that in his mercy, he will return to us. Verses 18 through 19 now as we close. Your holy people have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. Isaiah says, How briefly your holy people possessed your holy place, and now our enemies have destroyed it. Sometimes, Isaiah said, it's as though we've never belonged to you, as though we had never been known as your people. We live like those, he says, who never knew your rule, God. We live like those who never claimed to be yours. In other words, our privileges and our blessings are all lost. And he says, no one would recognize us as being your people. Remember after Adam sinned, God came looking for Adam in the garden? Remember what God said? Adam, where are you? That question is asked tonight. God says, where are you? Where are you with God? Is he just a ritual? Is he just a a, a feel-good thing that, you know, when I go to church, I feel good? But do you have a, a, a saving relationship with him? Again, that's the most important question you could ask yourself. And, on, and, and answer it honestly. Where are you with God? Father, we come before you and we thank you for this awesome chapter, Lord. And Father, <clears throat> may we 
be real with ourselves, God. May we be honest with ourselves, Father. God, may we have an intimate, ongoing relationship with you, Father. Lord, help us not to play church, play games with you, God, but God, to love you with all of our heart, soul, and strength and mind, God. And Father, I pray for those here tonight that may not be walking with you, Lord, or may not know you. The Father, they would come to you, Lord. And they would seek forgiveness. That they would ask for your forgiveness, Lord. And to be restored. That you would forgive them and restore them, God. And that they leave here tonight differently than when they came in. So may your spirit, Father, convict and make real to them your words and what you say. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. uh, Sunday morning.